This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, I've got two detective stories for you. The first is Simon Templer, created by Leslie Charteris, also known as The Saint. Now, The Saint was originally a thief who robbed the ungodly, usually criminals or other lowlifes, to enrich himself or might occasionally capture a criminal for the same purpose. The character moved and acted with charm and style and grew to be considered the Robin Hood of modern crime. The Saint came to radio in 1940 with a six-week run in Ireland over Radio Athlone and then to America in 1945. Tonight we hear the broadcast that was first aired in 1951 entitled The Amnesia Victim. Adventures of the Saints, starring Vincent Price. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. The Robin Hood of modern crime now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor Vincent Price as... The Saint. Just a moment. Yes? Are you Simon Templer? The man they call a saint? Yes, I am. Who am I? Oh, what do I get if I come up with the correct answer? Let me in and I'll show you. Well, you're in. If you're carrying your laundry in that little black bag, Jack Benny is I in. said I'll show you. There. Oh, laundry never looked like this. Don't touch, just look. It's almost all big bills. A whole bag full of big bills. What did you do? Tell your car to Honest John? That's what I want you to tell me. You mean you don't know how you got all this money? I don't know anything. That goes for who I am, where I came from, where I'm going. I see. An hour ago, I woke up in a taxi and we're driving through the park. I got a bump on the head the size of an ostrich egg and this bag full of sugar beside me. When I wake up from a bump on the head, I'm lucky if I find an aspirin beside me. I got no wallet, no papers, no keys, not even a matchbook. My pockets are empty and so's my head. I remember nothing. The cab driver? Oh, he's waiting for me downstairs. He says he picked me up on a midtown street. He says I gave him a ten spot to drive me through the park while I took a nap. So for a thousand dollars from this joy jam bag, Saint, who am I? My friend, I'm afraid you have amnesia. You'd better tear some doctor away from his cigarette test and have yourself looked at. You're nuts. You go to a doctor with a knock on your noggin, the doctor calls the cops, the cops come calling and write your own finish. You don't like cops? With a hat like I'm wearing, I'm not even positive I hate spinach. 
It isn't what I might think of cops that's important, Saint. It's what they might think of me. You mean the money? I mean exactly nothing else. Anybody carrying this kind of dough these days has either been stealing from a bank or holding on to government. No hospital, Saint. No doctors, no cops, no explanations, no jails. You. Me. You. Once again, Saint, for a thousand bucks, who am I? All right. A thousand dollars goes to the Red Cross in anticipation of the day that I become a national disaster. You just made a deal. As for you, you'd better go into my guest room, lock your stuff and your money in, and sleep off that bump, huh? Before it grows into another head and wants to know who it is. You'll find sleeping pills in the medicine chest if you need them. I'll need them. You're going somewhere? I want to see if that cab driver left his meter running. Thanks a lot, Mr. Temple. You're very welcome, Mr. I can't help you there. But for the time being, I'll just call you Mr. Sugar. Mr. All I know is the guy climbs in the cab at 48 in Madison, hands me a 10 spot, tells me to take it off through the park while he snatches 40. He handed you the money before you took him riding? Yeah, before. Well, let me have how come. Because I didn't want him in my cab, that's how come. The way he was bobbing and waving, I thought he was lushed. I didn't want no trouble with no drunks. So you had a little argument? A little discussion. Then he takes out a $10 bill and forces it on me. So I stopped discussing and stopped driving. The $10 bill, he took it out of his pocket, huh? If you know any other place a guy can carry his dough, let me know, and I'll take the bill off of my wife's neck when we go to bed nights. Hmm. Out of his pocket. What's the matter? You think I'm lying? You're not lying. Now I know how my old grandmother felt when the medicine man swore that the snake oil would cure her rheumatism. Uh, having trouble finding out what the score is, huh? No, I don't care what the score is. I'd just like to know what the game is. Well, well, here he is, your long last, Basil. Yeah, and I'm very glad, Cecil. Oh, so glad. You were waiting for me. Yeah, we seen you chatting with the cab pusher outside, Saint. We didn't want to interrupt. So we come here into the hall. To await you. We want to have a chat, too. With you, Saint. With you. Oh, please, now, one head at a time. Now, what should we chat about? A man. Which man? The man we've been shagging. Shagging? He means following. The guy's in your apartment now. When we phone the boss and tell him, the boss has a reaction. Right while he's talking to us. I can understand it. I feel a little sick myself. But the boss says we should call you and ask you politely. No, Basil. He said first ask him politely. Oh, thank you, Cecil. So we are asking. Politely? So why don't you politely tell us? Look, if you boys are auditioning a new television act, Radio City went that away. We almost do a lot of politely, Saint. We hardly got one good man left. So what goes with the man in your apartment, Saint? The boss says he wants to know. The boss says he got to know. The boss says he don't want that old trouble with the law should start up again. Basil, you're talking too much. I apologize, And Saint, you are not talking enough. Now, politely, for the final time, the man with the black bag, what's he up to? Yeah. And what's he carrying in a bag? Mustache wax. Mustache wax? Yes, a new kind of mustache wax. Homogenized. He dropped in to give me a free home demonstration. Oh, don't give us none of that. You ain't even got a mustache. Well, he said he didn't mind waiting. Oh, dear. Basil, shall you hold him while I hit him, or shall I hold him while you hit him? No, you make the choice. No, no, Basil, I insist. <laughs> Hello, boss. 
Hello, Saint. Hey, you're just in time to accept my thank you. You're thanking me? Yeah, for making me a member of the Thug of the Month Club. Just think of all the money I've been wasting on gymnasium. From where I sat, it didn't look wasted. Yeah. Go on, beat it, boys. I'll talk to you later. Now, don't be sore, boss. We try to be polite, then we see some... Where you in, Jason? Yeah, yeah, beat it, beat it. Yeah. You know me, Templar? Yeah, not as well as I would if I bet on horse races. Frank O'Connor, you're a bookmaker. Well, you don't know me at all, Saint. I'm not a bookmaker. I'm the bookmaker. Mm, bully for you. We'll get right to the heart of the thing, eh? How much? I've got nothing for sale. Try Macy's. Ah, uh, let's be a little realistic, Templar. The way you live, the way you dress, you know, you got that dollar look. All that you've got to do is tell me in 50 words or less what I want to know about your guest inside and the big cash prize is yours. What's he up to? He doesn't know either, he says. Oh, come on, fella. Give a little. Do I have to start mentioning amounts? You can mention any amounts of amounts you want. I've nothing to sell you, O'Connor. All right, okay, if that's the way you want to play the hand. But you won't hold out long. I've found that people and racehorses have one important thing in common. They both have a price. Well, then why bother me with your impossible questions? Go make a deal with Citation. Now, the deal will be with you, Saint. And if my money won't make the record spin, the boys have a way all their own. Mm, yes, the boys. It's too bad they weren't able to stick around and play a little longer. But I guess the zoo was getting anxious. Oh, you'll be seeing them again. Soon. And, Saint, maybe you better start getting anxious. <laughs> Ah, love, which thou and I with fate conspire to change this sorry scheme of things entire. Would we not shatter it to bits and then... Anyone who recites Omar Khayyam to a highball either loves Omar Khayyam or loves highball. (laughs) I'm happy to say that I love and am faithful to both. And what brings the great saint, the scourge of the wicked, the nemesis of evil, to this humble drinking place? I have a brain to pick with you, Murphy. Whose brain? Your brain. Ah, you've made a wise choice. (laughs) Do we haggle about price, or is it the usual? The price is what it always is. Splendid, splendid. I will accept payment now. The bartender? Yeah? A bottle of bourbon for my friend. One of the stamped for services rendered. Coming right up. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And now, uh, render, friend. At your service, friend. <coughs> now, which branch of my fabulous brain did you purchase? Memory branch. Mice and men division. Department of Thugs and Bookmakers. The file on Frank O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Frank O'Connor. Born in Boston in 1912. Father was... Yeah, which brings us up to recent years. And an old trouble with the law that he doesn't want should start up again, to quote a thug named Basil. In the case of the missing paint man, Payne. Huh? Well, let's have that in Walt's time. George Payne, Payne's Paints. He liked to play the horses. He didn't like to pay the bookmaker. He didn't mind making promises, though. When was this? Oh, a couple of years ago. He owed O'Connor what could easily have been the annual budget of a small Latin American republic. How did it all come out? He disappeared. Disappeared. Like the buttons on a shirt in a ten-cent laundry. It created quite a splash. Uh, how come you, I didn't... You were in Las Vegas at the time. The Hotel Flamingo, I believe. It was room uh, 210, and the lady you liked in the floor show was named Yvonne. Yeah, someday when you have time, would you mind writing my memoir? 
Yeah, but right now, let's go on with the opera. Yeah. The police found out about Payne's debt to O'Connor. They picked O'Connor up, grilled him, medium rare, made him very uncomfortable, found they couldn't pin anything on him, turned him loose. Yeah, and Payne? Where are the snows of yesteryear? The popular theory is that he is a victim of amnesia. Someone. Amnesia? He's had it twice before, his doctor said. So be kind to the next bum who asks for a handout, Simon. He may own a million-dollar paint factory in Long Island City. Any relative? Wife. Much younger. Much prettier, too, they tell me. She's running the paint factory now, bigger and better than ever. That's all. Crow's farm. And I got my money's right. Naturally. I do have a remarkable brain, don't I? Fabulous. Any time, Mr. Templer, any time. I am here at my office every day. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. You're excused, but with reluctance. I'd like to get by, please. Yeah, you'd get by anyway. Look, I'm a very busy woman. I have no intention of standing here on a catwalk suspended over a thousand-gallon vat of boiling resin while a stranger throws passes at me. Mm, so that's what's boiling in that outsized tub below us, huh? Resin. And I had hopes it would turn out to be a hot Tom and Jerry. See here, who are you? What are you doing here? Well, they told me in the front office that Mrs. Payne would be back here in the production office. I'm uh, Simon Templer. I'm Mrs. Payne. And if you want to talk to me, Mr. Templer, let's get away from the heat of that vat before my makeup runs. If it runs, I'll chase it for you. Come into my office. Oh, thank you. Ms. Payne, I'm, uh, I'm here to talk to you about your husband. My husband? Mm. You know something about George. You know where he is. Well, let's just say I know where a man with amnesia is. At least he says he has amnesia. He says... I'm afraid I don't understand. Well, frankly, neither do I yet. Then what makes you think you... Well, a bookmaker named Frank O'Connor. O'Connor? Yeah, and two patrons of the arts named Basil and Cecil who work for him. I'm afraid I don't follow you. In the course of a dull conversation, Basil let it slip that their interest in my man with a paralyzed memory is a continuation of their one-time interest in your husband. So you think that the man with amnesia and my husband... I want to see. The theory that I'm working on. Oh, if only it turns out to be more than a theory. Uh, Mr. Templer, when can I meet this man? We'll get your hat. Now? All right. Only... Now, uh... Look, if you're worried about that resin you have cooking, couldn't you get some obliging neighbor to turn it off when it's done? <laughs> My only obliging neighbor is the foreman at this plant. I can leave as soon as he comes back. Fine. Here's my card. Thank you. Oh, if only I could have George back again. Mr. Templer... If the man with a bump on his head does turn out to be my husband, I shall be eternally in your debt. <laughs> that idea has some fascinating connotation. Templer? If I say yes? Joe Fowler, Interurban Insurance Company. Oh, I don't need any. No, I'm not a salesman. I'm an investigator. Of what? People, mostly. I hear you've dug up a guy who might be George Payne. He has big ears. I have a big telephone. Mrs. Payne called me right after you left her. I'd like to have a talk with this... Bur- hey. 
Somebody else wants to talk with him? Yes. Me. Now, come on in, Fowler. If there's anything left of the guy, when I get through with him, it's yours. You don't sound happy about this character. No, and I won't be until I know why he's pretending to have amnesia. Pretending? Yeah. And why is the insurance company dipping an oar into this? Quarter of a million bucks. Good reason? Mm-hmm. 250000 Good reason. That's the amount you won't have to pay if Mr. Payne is still living. Huh? That's it. Yeah. Well, come and meet my guest. Yeah, I'd like to very much. Mr. Sugar. Hmm. He didn't lock Temper. Look, hanging from the... Oh. He committed suicide. Yeah, it looks that way. It was supposed to look that way. But if he could talk, I think he'd tell us he's been murdered. Cheerful place, isn't it, Fowler? Waiting rooms of morgues aren't supposed to be cheerful. You're pretty sure that the unfortunate victim is Payne, aren't you? Oh, I didn't say that, Saint. I said he fits the physical description. But if the lovely Mrs. Payne should tell us that she is satisfied with the identification that the cause is her husband, then what? Then in all likelihood, the insurance company will be equally satisfied. And $250,000 moves from your pocket to hers. That's the way it goes, Saint. Mm. When a policyholder dies, we pay. It's the basic principle of life insurance, you know. I know. But in this particular instance, a few things strike me as being a little too basic. What do you mean? Well, I can answer that partially as of now, but I prefer to answer it entirely as of later. You still think Payne was murdered, Saint? Certainly. Guesswork? Mathematics. The well-worn problem of two added to two and equaling four, only in this case it was ten and ten equaling twenty. Twenty what? Sleeping bill. Sleeping pills? Mm, Twenty sleeping pills, each one guaranteed by the manufacturer to make you dream of Hedy Lamar. They, um, they're in my medicine chest. Oh, today I'm stupid. The late lamented knew I had dream pills in my medicine chest. He even said he thought he would need one. So he took one, and it didn't work. And he lay awake with a bump on the head and a skull full of amnesia, and being mentally upset, he became depressed, and he got out of bed and hung himself. Fowler, have you ever hung yourself? Huh? It's a difficult thing to do. And it's a dreary way to die. Painful, too. You can swing and sway in agony for as much as five minutes before you pronounce yourself dead. But people have been known to do it, Saint. Not people who have 20 sleeping pills available. Mm, see what you mean. If he'd wanted to kill himself, he'd have gone after the pills instead of the cord. Hey, you are a detective. But why was he murdered? Well, some people call it the root of all evil. You and I simply refer to it as money. This is where I get off. If he was knocked off for anything, it was certainly not for money. Or didn't you notice that little black bag was still with him? If the killer had taken the little black bag with its little green contents, the suicide he hoped to make everyone think it was would no longer look like suicide. There's a lot of sugar in that bag, Saint. And the killer could have so easily taken it. It cost him a lot of money to make this murder look like suicide. The way I'm thinking, it didn't cost him one red cent. What do you mean? Not one Chinese dime. Because that little black bag with its cargo of joy, every last penny of it, will now go back to its lawful owner. Lawful owner? But who? The killer. I don't think I'll wait any longer for Mrs. Payne to come and identify the body. I have a sudden urge to talk to a certain bookmaker. You're going? You're not interested in knowing whether or not Mrs. Payne identifies the guy as her husband? Mr. Fowler. Are you kidding Taxi! Taxi! 
You don't want a taxi, Mr. Templer. Does he bustle? No, indeed, he don't, Cecil. You have used your head. He's used both his heads. Is it recess time at the monkey house again, boys? He is funny. Is he bustle? He is funny now, Cecil, but will he be funny later? No, he will not, Bersley. It is not possible to be funny when you are sleeping under riverbed in a pair of cement pajamas. I want you knights of the round table to take me somewhere. Hmm? Oh, we're going to take you somewhere, all right. Yeah, I want to see O'Connor. There are some questions I intend to make him answer. You are going to make him? Yeah. Basil, either this chap is screwy or somebody already beat his brains up. Come, Saint. The boss is awaiting in the car. Well, I hope he hasn't been awaiting too long. Uh, this way, Pigeon. And, Saint, we are just about on a verge of losing our politeness, are we not, Cecil? We indeed are. What my colleague means, Saint, is don't venture to try nothing. Yes, Saint, like I told you, people and racehorses, they both have a price. You wouldn't talk for money. Set of prices now, a painless rub-out as against one that's full of agony. Hey, being far too generous, O'Connor. Hey, drive carefully, you hooligan. You want the cops on us? I'm sorry, boss. Don't worry, boss. I will see the battle drive carefully. Yeah, yeah. Well, Saint... Look, I'll make the offer even more attractive. I'll let you choose the spot where the bullets go. Oh, really? Now, that's too much. Frankly, Saint, I'd like to be able to tell you that I'll let you go after you told me what I want. You know, maybe with just a couple of broken bones here and there, some little stuff. But I can't do it. I can't let you continue alive. You're too smart. And unless you're running way off form, you've stirred up a fire I thought I'd put out three years ago. You did kill Payne, the paint man, three years ago, didn't you? Well, he owed me some pretty important money. The boys and I called on him to collect, and he said no. And the boys went into action. I'll stay with that. Yeah, these two apes of mine, they made with a little too much action. See, I didn't want George Payne killed. Just wanted him scared and to pay him up. Mm, the pain died, and the river bottom has been his home these last three years. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And tonight, he's going to have company on that lonely river bottom. And it won't be no mermaid. <laughs> ready to give me an earful now, Saint? Not quite ready. We'll make him ready when we get to the shack, boys. Yeah, I'll be just screaming to talk. Meanwhile, then, let's have some more of your reminiscences, O'Connor. For instance, uh, what made you so interested in the little man with the black bag, huh? What made me interested? Hey, you crazy? <laughs> Here we go. We knock a guy off three years ago, and for three years, he's laying in a river. Hey, how would you feel if you see him or his exact duplicate, the same clothes, same everything... On the street one day last week. I'd feel haunted. So you had the boys tail him for a couple of days. Yeah. Huh? And one of the places he went was my apartment. Yeah, yeah. But where he goes twice before that, that's what I get to worry over. Ah, yeah. He went to the place where George Payne would be most apt to go, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. So you began to worry about it, huh? You didn't want George Payne or anything concerning him to pop up anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You worried because... Whatever Payne's double was up to had to be a swindle. And you were afraid that the swindle might interest the police again in the Payne affair. And that you'd be on the carpet again and maybe this time you'd be nailed as Payne's killer. Yeah, I knew that you had it figured, Saint. <laughs> you see what brains do for a guy, though? 
You are going to be killed because you got brains. Ah, man. Come on, say. Come on, give, huh? Give. Spare the boys some bruised knuckles. What's the swindle the guy who looks like pain is pulling? Well, if he's pulling a, any swindle right now, it's trying to convince St. Peter that he belongs. Huh? Yeah, the man you're worried about is dead. Dead? Now you're pulling a swindle. Well, a little sightseeing trip to the morgue will convince you. Okay. All right, we'll take that trip, Saint. And if the guy is dead like you say, maybe you'll live a little. But if he's not, you're going to be dead a little. Well, I'm glad you're still here. I see everyone else is gone. Oh, I dread the thought of going home. After seeing my poor husband in the morgue, I, I thought maybe if I could work out, I'd not think too much. And what do I do now? Applaud? Pardon? The performance, the speech you just gave. Mrs. Payne, frankly speaking, you're just about as bad an actress as you are a swindler. Why, how dare you? Look, are you going to climb down off that high dudgeon, or must I push you? Your little pot of the honey. It was so simple, it almost worked. Look here, I demand to know what... Such a simple swindle, almost stupid. We have a Mr. Payne who has been missing for three years. We have a Mrs. Payne who is dying to get her hot little hands on a quarter of a million dollars worth of insurance money. You're insane. And finally, we have the highly fortuitous appearance of a man who looks so much like the missing Mr. Payne that even his bookie gives him a double take. Clock, make a deal with the double. Have him fake amnesia. Tell him to call on the saint and ask the saint to find out who he is. I don't know what you're talking about. Give the man a prop, a bag of money, so that the man can say, I wouldn't be bothering you, saint. I'd go to the police and ask them to find out who I am, except that this money I've got is probably illegal. So the saint puts his fabulous nose to the grindstone and sniffs out that the man is George Payne. And the man, of course, willingly allows himself to be murdered. So that I can collect my husband's insurance. The man thought he would take over a paint factory. That's all he thought. He didn't know about insurance. So, the man is then murdered. By me, of course. No, no. You and I were here together, remember? We were standing over that hot vat of resin at the time the man was murdered. Well, thank you at least for not accusing me of murder, Mr. Tinkler. I said you didn't actually commit the murder, but your colleague did. So you are just as much of a candidate for the chair as he is. Oh, I have a colleague, have I? With an imagination like yours, Mr. Temper, I'm surprised you didn't make it a whole game. Mm, so the man is murdered and Mrs. Payne says, yep, that's that's George Payne and collects all the insurance money as of now without having to wait that long, dreary seven years before her missing spouse can be declared legally dead in plot. <laughs> you should write comic books, Mr. Templer. Yeah, I should. At least the murderers in that business are all made of ink. You know, this whole affair might have given me great difficulties if it weren't for one thing. Oh, what one mm, Stupid thing. The man with the alleged amnesia telling me he awoke from his deep nap with his pockets picked dry. And yet the cab driver telling me that he took a $10 bill out of his pocket. A little unimportant and stupid. Of course, you can prove all the wild things you've been saying. There's only one thing that still consumes my curiosity, Mrs. Payne. Who is your accomplice, the man who actually committed the murder? Well, all you have to do, Mr. Templer... Just turn around and you'll see him. And you'll see this beautiful gun I'm holding, too. Oh, uh, yes, an insurance company detective would be a big help in swindling an insurance company. Stay where you are, Saint. I said stay where you are. Thank you. Give me that gun. Give it to me. Thank you. Run! Run. That won't help, Mrs. Payne. Hey, be careful, the back! 
Someday. Somebody is going to buy a can of your paint, Mrs. Payne, and wonder why there are buttons in it. Don't bother, Mrs. Payne. I've been called it before. What do you say we go drop in on some policemen, huh? You've been listening to another transcribed adventure of The Saints, the Robin Hood of modern crime. Now here is our star, Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, in tonight's cast, you heard Joan Banks as Mrs. Payne and Sheldon Leonard as Frank. Ed Max and Tony Barrett were Cecil and Basil. Sidney Miller was Murphy, Lamont Johnson, Mr. Sugar, and Jack Moyles Fowler. This is Vincent Price inviting you to join us again next week at the same time for another exciting adventure of the saint. Good night. This adventure of the saint was written by Michael Cramoy. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris, is a James L. Safier production and is directed by Helen Mack. Vincent Price is soon to be seen co-starring with Michelin Pearl and Errol Flynn in Marsh, uh, William Marshall's production of Bloodline. All you Saint fans will be glad to know the Saint comic books are available on all newsstands. Stay tuned for Philip Marlowe next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. In our second feature tonight, as mentioned, another detective program, Philip Marlowe. He was the brainchild of writer Raymond Chandler. In the 1930s, he began to write pulp fiction, detective fiction, introduced the character Philip Marlowe in his first novel, The Big Sleep, that was published in 1939. Philip Marlowe was like many hard-boiled detectives at the time. He could take a punch to the face and still have a stinging comeback. He was also morally upright, liked classical music, and played chess. In all, there were seven Philip Marlowe novels published, all of which have been adapted to film or radio. Philip Marlowe made a natural transition to film and old-time radio. And tonight we hear the episode, The Glass Donkey. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end. But they never learn. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum, the refreshing, delicious treat that gives you chewing enjoyment, presents for your listening enjoyment, Raymond Chandler's most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, the makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum are glad to bring you tonight's transcribed story, The Glass Donkey. Hello, Philip Marlowe. Oh, this is Matthews, Phil. Hi. Uh, listen, Phil. Yeah? Didn't you once go around with a brunette named Helen Lofton? Helen Lofton? Sure. Still do now and then. Why, Lieutenant? Monday your night off? Not so as yeah. you'd notice, Marlowe. When was the last time you saw her? Oh, maybe a month ago. Hey, what is this? You sound real official. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I don't like it any better than the next guy. 
Uh, look, Phil, did Helen have any big problems on her mind at that time? Just me. <laughs> hey, wait a minute, Matthews. Is Helen in trouble? Not now, but she was in lots of it three hours ago. At about five o'clock this afternoon, somebody put a bullet in her neck, Phil. Oh, no. It's down here at the morgue. If you think of anything, let me know, will you? Might as well have hit me in the stomach with a hammer. Helen Lofton, a good-to-look-at girl with soft black hair and clear hazel eyes, gets a big charge out of life. But Helen is, I mean was, a great girl. And she'd always had enough sense not to waste time on the kind of people who put bullets in other people. For a long few minutes, I just sat in my apartment and felt sorry. But then I began to want to get my hands on whoever had pulled the trigger. By the time I got downtown and walked into the morgue attendant's office, that urge had become a big, hot lump in my chest. Ah, Mr. Marlowe. Hello, Chester. Yes, stranger around here lately. You got a Helen Lofton? I'd like to pay my respects. Yeah, can't stop you, boy. Uh, Lofton, huh? Oh, yeah, she's still on the table. You'll have a little company back there, Lieutenant Matthews. Oh, he's still here? Oh, he's been in and out all evening. Hey, can you find your way all right? Yeah, thanks, Chester. I didn't expect you in person, Marlowe. You could have called. Got something to offer on the Lofton girl here? Yeah. My services, Matthews. How much did she mean to you, Phil? Enough to make this real personal. What have you got on it, Matthews? Nothing. A neighbor reported the shot. Found Helen's body spilled down some stairs at the side of her house. Mm -hmm. It was a thirty-two at close range. No reason, no motive, no leads. Unless you can call this a clue, which I don't. Let's see that. Mm. Yeah, it could be the hind leg of one of Helen's glass donkeys. You know, she collected them. Oh. I was on the stairs near the body. Uh-huh. Hey, look, Matthews, you don't mind me sticking my two cents in this, do you? It'll do me a lot of good. No, I don't mind. Just keep me posted, huh? <laughs> Drove out Sunset Boulevard, then north on Camino Avenue to the neat little house where Helen had lived. Sat very quietly back under some big magnolia trees. Someone had drawn the blinds on the two front windows and it made him look like... like a pair of closed eyes. I walked around to the side door on the stairs where they found her body and that's when I noticed the light on inside the house. The door was unlocked, so I went in. Light was coming from the bedroom and when I got to that door, I saw a girl... Blonde with harlequin horn rims, moving stiffly, like a lost somnambulist. I watched her drag one slow finger the full length of the dresser. When that was over, I... I said, hello. Who are you? I was a friend of Helen's, Philip Marlowe. You? Lila Hughes. You... You startled me. I, I thought I was alone in here, and... After all that's happened... Yeah... Did you, uh... Did you know Helen pretty well? Yes. I was just about her only girlfriend. You see, we worked together in the same office and had the same boss. Uh I... I guess they're going to want me to do something about all of their things now. Yeah, yeah, it's real (laughs) tough. Everything in the house is just another reminder. Even this little sherry decanter. Here. But that's Helen's. That's all right. Sit down. Drink it. At least it'll do you good. Look, 
Lila, I gotta know why this happened to Helen. It doesn't make sense. Can you help me? Any idea at all? No. No, the police have already talked to me about it. Please, Mr. Marlowe. I Marlo. know, I know this is unpleasant for you, but I need some answers. It's been over a month since I saw her last. Who's she been going with lately? I don't know. Helen never said much about her dates. Who's your boss? Mr. Maffey. Mm-hmm. Oh, she dated him a few times, but so have I. Surely you don't think Mr. No, Maffey... No, no, no. I just want to talk to him, that's all. It's Norman Maffey. Maffey Real Estate Company on Wiltshire. He, he lives on Ogden Drive, 3848. Thanks, Lila. Well, I'll be on my way now. Hey, look. Maybe you better come too, huh? Let all this go until tomorrow. When you're feeling better. Yes. I, I guess you're right. I turned out the light and snapped the lock as we left. Then walked the sad little blonde as far as her coop. Got her address on Beachwood Drive and saw her off. After that, I went to my own car. But before I got in, I... I looked back at Helen's house once more and tried to shake the empty, loose ends feeling it had given me. I was snapped out of that mood in a hurry. A man with a half an acre of forehead had just twisted out of sight behind a tree truck in the backyard. I started for him and he broke and ran toward the wall in the alley. It was a six-footer. He rolled across the top and fell over. When I got there, he was up and gone. He hadn't had time to get out of the alley, but it was empty. Which could only mean he was laying for me. Come here, you! You don't, mister! This time, anyway, go! Oh. in good neighborhoods is no softer than trash anyplace else. When I finally got clear of it, the forehead was gone. I figured all I had to show was one of his patch pockets, which I still had crunched in my hand. But there was something else. Glittering on the ground was what had been in that pocket. A little glass donkey with a hind leg missing. On the way back, I stopped once and tried to call Matthews, but he was out. So I drove on down to Ogden Drive as far as number 3848. A gray at the temple's type in blue flannel opened up. Yes? Mr. Maffey? Are you a reporter? No, I'm a friend of Helen Lofton's. Also, I'm a private detective named Marlowe. I'd like to talk to you. Private detective? Mm Mm-hmm. Who hired you, Mr. Marlowe? Who are you working for? Myself. Like I said, Helen was a friend of mine. Mm Hmm. But I, uh... I'm quite busy, Marlowe, but uh, come in. Uh-huh. Back this way, to the den. I've already been interviewed by the police. There may be again. It's not quite like being vaccinated, Mr. Matthew. No. Just why have you come here to see me? Because I intend to find out who shot Helen. What makes you think I'd have the remotest idea? Nothing special. She worked for you, didn't she? So do several other people. You dated her? Yes, I did. She was a very attractive girl. But there was no reason for me to kill her. There was no reason for anybody to kill her. Mr. Maffey, suppose I was to tell you that I'm acquainted with your wife. Oh, so that's it. You cheap blackmailer, get out. Then you do have a wife, huh? Now, look here, Marlowe. You don't have to be sly with me. I'm not hiding anything. Ask me what you want to know and get out of here. How come Mrs. Maffey doesn't object when you dine and dance the office help? Because we've been separated for several years. Separated, but not divorced. Huh? That's right. Mm. She lives in San Diego, and we have as little as possible to do with each other. My bank takes care of our only mutual interest. She refuses to give me a divorce. Did you tell the police all this? They didn't ask. 
Did they happen to ask where you were this afternoon about five? As a matter of fact, they didn't. I wasn't being treated as a suspect then. And I don't intend to be now. Okay, Mr. Maffey, where were you? Now, look, I'm a private detective, remember? I'm not even taking notes. All right, Marto, all right. Been having business troubles lately. Lot on my mind. I was out driving in my car, trying to relax. Can't prove it, can you? No, probably not. Mm -hmm. I don't expect to have to try. All right, tell me something else. Do you happen to know anything about a man with a very high forehead, a young guy, maybe 30, about um, six feet tall? Yes, yes, I do. Helen went out with a fellow like that recently. What's his name? Victor Semera, I think. Why? Well, I ran across him tonight, and I didn't like his, uh, his attitude. Sure, that's it. I'll bet on it. What? What are you staring at? This ashtray? No. That little ducky in front of a betting window. Thanks for everything, Matthew. I'll see you. tray on the table behind Matthew's desk had been made of baked clay in the shape of a sombrero, a keepsake from old Mexico that kicked hard at my memory. At least it was a thought well worth the price of a phone call to Tijuana. So I drove as far as the first payphone, which was at an all-night mobile gas station, got a handful of change, and while my car was being gassed, put the call through to my old friend, Senor Mike Donahue, who had given up reporting in Chicago for editing south of the border. We are ready on your call now, sir. Go ahead. Hello, Mike. Hello, old pal. Hi. Hasta la vista. What's cooking? You coming down to see me? Later on. Listen, Mike, I'm trying to find out about a glass donkey. A which? A donkey made of glass, a souvenir mule. It's got silver shoes and a silver halter. Oh, one of those things. Uh, that silver works strictly a Tijuana product, you know. Yeah, I know. Peddle them at the highlight games down here. Out by the betting windows? That's right. Uh, can't buy them anyplace else, Mike. No, not that I know of. Mm-hmm. Why, you want some? No, I've already got one. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. You've been a big hey, help. Wait a minute. What's the matter? As long as you're on the wire, Gumshoe, maybe you can help me. How? I got a big front-page mystery spread, if I can get a little more dope. Ever hear of a babe around L.A. named, uh, let's see, Mrs. Norman Maffey? Mrs. No... Mrs. Norman Maffey? Yeah. Holy smoke, I'll say so. What, Mike, what's the story? Well, the boys just found her body out here on a side road at the edge of town. Yeah? Been dead a couple of days. Probably happened Saturday night. Saturday night? Yeah. The hotel identified her about ten minutes ago. She was run over. Run over? Well, Mike, you said it was a mystery story. Yeah. You see, the tire tracks out there are still good. It was no accident, Phil. It was murder. Somebody went a long ways out of their way. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, somebody sure did. <laughs> Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's exciting story, The Glass Donkey. When I hung up on Mike Donahue and the news of Mrs. Maffey's violent death on a lonely road outside of Tijuana, I postponed trying to figure it all out until I had called Lieutenant Matthews at Homicide and asked him to meet me at the bar I was at. 
Ten minutes later, Matthews was sitting opposite me and chewing on a cold pipe while I filled him in. Oh, now, easy, Phil. I'm a slow and steady boy. Now, question, who killed Helen Loft? Answer, whoever killed Mrs. Norman Matthews. Why? Where's the tie? The last donkey I just told you about. It came from Tijuana. So? So I figured that whoever sent it to Helen was, one, a friend who knew she'd get a kick out of a trinket like that. Yeah. And two, sent it before he or she decided to kill Mrs. Matthews. Oh, and therefore said friend had to get the glass donkey back because if traced, it would place the killer in Tijuana where sooner or later Mrs. Matthews' body had to be found. Is that right? That's so very right. And all that brings us back to only one thing. Mrs. Matthews' killer also got Helen Lofton. Was forced to. Yeah, yeah, it could be. But look now, Phil, the tough... What'll it be, chum? You look lonely. Forlorn, maybe. Uh, two beers. Two beers, huh? <laughs> Any special vintage? Yeah, the kind with suds on top. Goodbye, comic. Okay, okay. No offense, sir. Oh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, I was saying for the tough one. Now, who killed Mrs. Matthews? Mr. Matthews. The motive? Ah, he had the best motive. He hated his wife. Also, Matthews, when I talked to him, he was real vague about his whereabouts lately. And for a clincher, he did know Helen Lofton well enough and long enough to send her a cheap trinket, as in donkey made a glass. Now, you impressed? A little, but you're holding back, Marlowe. I'm what? No, no, not on me. On yourself, Phil. Look, I know you. You don't usually leap at conclusions and over facts. That isn't your style. I'm trying to Do tell you, Matthew. Website. You know, I told Kelly about that crack you made, mister, and Skip he it. said... Skip it. And goodbye again. We're busy. Yeah, okay. Too bad we ain't got tablecloths. You could impress me, chum. Writing down big numbers. You tip her, I'll break your arm. Yeah. Now, look at Phil. Could you be a little bit prejudiced about this guy? All right. Now, Phil. Yeah. Sure, I'm prejudiced. I just don't like Norman Matthews' stuffy kisser and something else. I might as well admit I keep skipping that guy with a mile-high forehead yeah. and a boyfriend named Vic Samro because I don't exactly know how he figures in. I'm too impatient to wait around for the answer. Uh-oh. What is it, Phil? A game, Lieutenant Cole, speaking of the devil. Oh, don't look now, maybe? It's forehead, Matthews. He was in the next booth catching it all. He's at the front door now, see? But he isn't running yet. He's just paying his check. Lieutenant, how about trying that cigarette machine over there while you talk to me like I was still here? Huh? Gotcha. I'll take the back entrance out to the sidewalk. You'll know if I need help. Matthews underplayed his part neatly, and I got out the back door to the street where I spotted Semerau some 50 yards ahead walking slowly toward an empty car, a new green Nash that was parked close to mine. But then suddenly he started running like he had just backed into a blowtorch. Before I knew it, he had piled into his car. When I was in mine and after him, the street became that much narrower as a truck the size of a battle wagon lurched out of a side alley without so much as thinking about a full stop. You stupid clown! What was that, Sonny? You heard me, muscles! Sonny, you have a nasty time. You yeah. have a couple of funny ideas about driving. All right there, fellow. Read it in a week. A bird? Yeah, and the big letters spelled police. Now get back in your cab there and wait. We'll chat in a bit. Yeah, sure. Whatever you say, officer. Only this jerk was in a row. Oh! A muller that still leaves us a big blank to fill in. Yeah. But while we're trying, Lieutenant, do you mind if I drop in on Mr. Matthew again? Alone, I mean? I'd like to try pinning the leg of the ducky on him. All right, Phil, but be careful, huh? It's fragile, you know, made of glass. Yes, what? Oh, you again. Yeah, do you mind if I come in again, Mr. Maffey? Frankly, I do, Marlowe. I don't feel very well tonight. Your wife was murdered, Mr. Maffey. Wife? Murdered? Still mind if I come in? 
Where did it happen, Morrow? In San Diego? Morrow, I asked you where it happened. In Tijuana. Ever been there? Yes, of course. Marlowe, what are you looking for? Just looking. When were you last there, Maffey? I don't know. Maybe a month, six weeks ago. Not Saturday night, huh? No, not Saturday night. Marlowe, what are you getting? Maffey, did you ever send Helen Lofton a present? See here. Who do you think you are? And exactly what are you looking for? A wastebasket that isn't empty. You keep a very tidy place, Mr. Maffey. Which has what to do with my wife being dead, Marlowe? Are you out of your mind? Maybe. But also maybe not. Maybe I'm real smart. Maybe I've come to the right place to look for an empty package and a piece of wrapping paper that would be addressed to Miss Helen Lofton in your handwriting and postmarked Tijuana, Mexico. Tijuana? A large piece of wrapping paper and a large package stuffed with excelsior. It was once home to a glass donkey in which you had to get back from Helen Lofton before she got it. Or if you were too late for that killer and then get it back before anyone else knew about it. Does that still leave me out of my mind, Maffey? Absolutely. We'll see. After we try the backyard and your incinerator. Now, wait a minute. You know, the law says you can't light it after 10 in the a.m., Maffey. If you're the one stamped guilty, you wouldn't want to arouse suspicion. Stop, Marla. This has gone far enough. You're not the police. Which means I don't need any more of a search warrant than this. <laughs> He plopped to the floor, face down, like he was made of wet wash. When I rolled him over and was sure that a return engagement was still a long way off, I cut the lights, then went through the house and out into the kind of backyard that you had to call a garden. Beyond all the moon-bathed beauty and half-hidden by a fountain that was backed up by an ivy trestle was what I wanted. A short, squat, scarred, ugly incinerator. The door was metal cold, and inside I found more encouragement. None of the paper that was jammed three feet deep and was burned. I started tossing the stuff out, counting more on the feel and sound of wrapping paper than anything else. Once I stopped short, but it was only a grocery sack. The second time I stopped short, I had a better reason. Marlowe, you're wasting your time there. Well, Mr. Victor Simrock. Yeah, or as you put it, the guy with the mile-high forehead. I wouldn't get touchy, Simrock. You were swinging the dock ahead, remember? I'm sorry about that, Marlowe. I didn't know we were both on the same side. Both on the... Take it easy, Victor. You wouldn't try to set me up again, would you? Why the sudden change of heart? Because now I know that you're in the up and up, Milo. I overheard you talking to that police lieutenant and also the Mexican newspaper man. Well, bully for you, eavesdropper. But also you ran. Why? I was afraid you'd turn me over to that lieutenant. Milo, listen. From the start, I've been trying to find Helen's killer. That's why I've been following you. I, I found that glass donkey in her porch and... Oh, to get right to the point, Milo, I can tell you that the one who killed Helen and Mrs. Murphy... <laughs> <laughs> shot that had come from the shadow driveway close into the house spun Simra in a half circle, and by the time he'd caught screw to the ground, I had my thirty-eight in hand, and it covered the distance across the garden. I was too late to do anything, except to identify the figure I saw take off in the sedan as Mr. Norman Maffey. This was some help. Not to Victor Simra back in the garden. He had managed to crawl as far as the small pond that surrounded the fountain. There he had died, one hand half submerged in the dark, cold water. The other clutching his chest, blood-soaked and... and discolored another way. I must have stared at it for a full 30 seconds before it suddenly began to add for me. Add fast to the only backyard left in the spot where I could get to Matthew and maybe stop a third murder. Lila Hughes' place on Beachwood Drive. It was all the push I needed. <laughs> I 
pulled up away from the place and got out of my car and ran for the back. Only ten minutes had gone by, and I was glad of it. Because standing next to an open, still-smoking incinerator, a piece of charred paper in his hand that I knew was the remains of the rapper I'd been after, was Norman Matthew. And opposite him, a gun in her hand, was Lila Hughes. A shy, shy blonde. Lila, you... You're crazy, insane. Well, I saw you shoot Victor Semero. You must have killed Of course it was me, honey. I killed him. I killed Helen. I killed your wife. Well, about her, I'm not sorry. I'd do it again. I... How could you plan an ugly, ruthless... I didn't plan mo- anything, darling. I ran into her by accident. Tijuana's a small place. We, we started sociably. We had a few drinks, a drive to the outskirts in my car, and then talk. Talk of you, darling. I knew I could have you with her out of the way. Helen was no threat. You gave her up, so so there was no one else to stand between us. And, honey, you hated your wife. But nothing. It was all very simple, darling. Helen, well, Helen was different. You see, I had to kill her. That piece of wrapping paper there that you just snatched from me, the, the paper I sent Helen a little gift in. That's the reason, Norman, I did have to kill her. And now you do have to kill me, too. Don't you, Lila? Oh, no. No, darling. Now the killing's done. I, I did it all for you, darling. Don't you understand? You devil. You she-devil. Oh, Norman, dearest, you don't know what you're saying. Honey, I tell you, I did all this for you. Remember that, darling. How can I ever forget it? Don't move, Lila. Don't breathe. Drop your gun there at your feet. No. No, I think I'll use it again. Even if you shoot, I'll use it. We belong together, Norman and I, and we're going to be together. She's dead. Marlo, she... She did think she could shoot. Even if you did, didn't she? Yeah. That's what she thought, all right, Matthew. Call the police. They know where they can find me. Matthews, I, I'm sorry. I've been out walking. What do you want to know? The one blank, Phil. What sent you over to Lila Hughes, please? Oh. Uh, Victor Semero, his hand was burned, blistered red. Like you've been fishing around in a hot incinerator, huh? Yeah. That and what he had to say to me about us being on the same track. Lila Hughes was the only other one who was both close enough to Helen to send her that glass donkey in at the same time, even remotely connected with Matthew. Uh-huh. Any idea what sent Semero to her backyard? I guess... His tack all night was to follow me. When he tried to pick my trail up again after running from the bar, he thought Lila Hughes' place might be the answer. <laughs> I thought he was right. Real right. Yeah, he must have seen her around her incinerator lighting it and then decided to get to you when he couldn't reach in after the wrapping paper. Yeah, something like that. With, of course, her taking off after him. Look, anything else, Matthews? Uh, Phil. Hmm? Phil, you, you weren't in love with Helen Lofton. 
upon a time, were you? Uh, no. Uh, no, no, Matthews. I wasn't in love with her. I'll, uh, I'll come down to headquarters in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> A crying shame. Presented by Wrigley's Spearmint Gum, bring you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and star, Gerald Moore. Philip Marlowe is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the transcribed cast were John Stevenson, Michael Ann Barrett, William Lolly, Bill Johnstone, Vivi Janis, and Vic Perrin. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. We invite you to be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time it got off to a swashbuckling start at a pirate's cove. A map to a fortune in black pearls ran past a beautiful island girl, a conniving Malayan merchant, and stopped at a wild man from Borneo dead in a rusty hulk. All in the quiet outskirts of Los Angeles. Bob Stevenson speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Bold Venture, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, followed by My Favorite Husband. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great evening. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.